leading us so well. Hey, we are uh, just taking a break from our Mark series and uh, in an Advent series called Measured by the Manger. Um, we got the manger over here, or what, what, what it could look like. And uh, when you look at a manger, I don't know what, what comes to mind. Maybe it's, uh, it's part of the story. Maybe it's shepherds and wise men and, uh, and the virgin birth and Joseph and Mary traveling on a donkey to Bethlehem. And uh, whatever part of that story comes to mind, that, that, that's great that that's a reminder uh, of the story. In this series, as we contemplate the manger, uh, what we are doing is not necessarily focusing on the story, although that, that's being told in song and, and we're talking about the Christmas story, but we're looking at the manger to, to, to find out what it tells us about God. His approach to us gives us an idea of who he is. And last week, Brian got us started off in this, uh, in this series so well. He, he, he talked about the idea that God is not in a rush. He's not in a hurry. And if you remember, he, he held up a Bible and held up that middle page that's between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or what he called Act 1 and Act 2. And that, that single page represents uh, about 400 years. Uh, theologians call it the 400 silent years. Uh, between the, the last voice of the prophets who were, who were talking about this coming Messiah, the coming deliverer, the Savior who would come and, and rescue God's people. And 400 years goes by before Jesus is born in, uh, in Bethlehem. Um, and uh, that, that, that waiting, is, waiting is something that's hard for us. Uh, there's tension in our soul when it comes to waiting. And Brian talked about the, the personal implications in our relationship with, with God. That oftentimes we're focused on where we've been and where we're going. And when we find ourselves in a place of waiting, we get a little antsy. Yet in those waiting rooms of life is where God does much of his deep, profound work in us. And so I thought he did a great job of just talking about that. And this week, as we look at the manger... The, the, the word that I, I, I want us to, to, to understand is that, that God's approach to us is humble. He's, he's the humble king. He comes to us in such humility, which is a little bit surprising when you think about it. You know, if you're God and, and you're looking at a planet you have created and all the people that you love so much who are in such a mess and you want to rescue them, and your rescue plan includes sending your one and only son to, to be the deliverer. When your son arrives on the planet and you have all the resources and all the power available to you, um, you know, how, what would his arrival, what, what could it look like? Because God could pull all the, you know, all the strings and you know, maybe he would, he would uh, prepare an event like the opening ceremonies to the Olympics. I mean, just the, all the stops pulled out, and, and it's just this huge event, and no one misses it. You can't miss it. It's just so eye-catching, and, and maybe it's something like that. Or perhaps it's, uh, it's like you know, the halftime show at the Super Bowl. It's celebrities and fireworks, and it's broadcast over the globe. Again, nobody misses it. You can't miss it. It's just all the stops have been pulled. Or perhaps you, you, do, you pull out all the stops kind of like the, the Kaiser Iris Festival. Or, well, maybe not, not the Kaiser Iris Festival, but, but you know, just a parade, a ticker tape parade, fanfare, fireworks, and get people's attention. Have your son born in, in the most famous city in the world, in a castle, laid in a golden bassinet. I mean, you could really impress people that way. And thinking people, 
have asked the question that if God were to send his son, why would he not do it in an impressive fashion? Why a manger? And my response to that question would be, you know, God's apparent lack of desire to impress us is impressive. And it tells us something about him. Because God didn't choose to have his son born in some famous city or in a castle, born to prestigious parents and laid in a golden bassinet. No, his son is born in, frankly, a nowhere town called Bethlehem. It's not that well known. And his parents are peasants. And he's not laid in a golden bassinet. He's laid in a manger. It's a feeding trough for animals. And he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, which would have been the clothing of a peasant child. God sends his son, and his son, Jesus, comes to us in such humility, so much so that you wouldn't even notice it. He's the humble king. Some of you may have seen this, uh, this YouTube video that's out there. Uh, Kyrie Irving is a, is a professional basketball player, plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Here's a picture of, of Kyrie Irving. He's dunking here. He, he's, uh, he's, he's a pro, right? So he's not good at basketball. He's great at basketball. Uh, and uh, Irving collaborated with Pepsi. They were marketing a new product. And what they did, what, what Pepsi did is they, they took some makeup artists and they took this 20-something-year-old uh, professional basketball player, player and, and made him up to look like a 75-year-old man. And uh, they took him and with, a, with, a, with another actor who uh, who's, plays his nephew, uh, they took him to a, an outdoor court in New Jersey, uh, Bloomfield, New Jersey, uh, dressed up Kyrie Irving, professional basketball player. He looks like a 75-year-old guy, kind of frumpy and wearing sweats and uh, kind of moving a little bit slow. And, uh, and, and, and in this video shoot, uh, what, what ends up happening is uh, Irving is sitting there watching a game, and then one of the players who's kind of in on it, because uh, no one knows that there's a pro at the court, and, uh, and one of the, the players feigns an, an injury, and this nephew says, hey, Uncle Drew, why don't you come join us? And you see the other basketball players and the people around the court looking like, are you kidding me? This guy is going to play basketball? And the looks on, on people's faces, and in fact, I'll show you a bit of the clip here. Um, Irving purposely misses the hoop. He airballs it. He's, he calls backboard and bounces one hard off the backboard. And, uh, and, and just watch the reaction of people as they're watching this, this older guy uh, play basketball. It's good that they come out here and play some basketball. And it's cold weather. Oh, my gosh. Come in. Got you, Uncle Drew. You could be good if you took the game serious. Okay. Uh -huh. Oh. You okay? Yo, we need we need another player. Yo, I think my Uncle Drew could play. Uncle Drew, you can play. Better stop playing around. Come on, Uncle Drew. We need you, man. Come on. All right, man. You want me to take? <laughs> Man, just get the smallest person to cook. He's, he's really I slow. Him. I got your help. Oh, sheesh. We here, we here. Oh. Screen, 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 screen. Screaming, screaming. You okay? Yeah, I'm good. Show him something, man. Yeah. Backboard. I'm the Drew.
Okay, it's not going so well. Um, but but you know, Irving is kind of holding back a bit, and people are wondering, okay, what's you know what's going on here? Do you want, can, want to see him play a little bit of ball against these guys who have no idea uh, what's going on out there? Do you want to see it? Yeah, it's it's pretty it's it's pretty hilarious. Here, roll this next clip as he starts to play a little ball. I got you all right. Turned up, young blood. I can smell it. It's amazing. I'm dropping a bit. was a professional basketball player. Now, I'm not saying that's a great illustration of the incarnation, all right? <laughs> but what I'm saying is that, you know, he shows up on the court. No one has any idea. He's, he doesn't look like he fits the role. It's exactly Bethlehem. No one has any idea that the Son of God, get this, the creator and sustainer of all things has sent his son, and he's not born in some palace. He's, he there's no you know, fireworks, so there's no opening ceremonies. A baby is laid in a manger, and, and God's lack of desire to impress us is impressive, but more importantly, it tells us something about God. And we are people who are on a journey. Uh, Romans chapter 12 says, no, don't, don't no longer be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are in this process of being conformed to the image of Christ. We want to become more like him. So we see a manger and we see the humility of Christ. We should take notice that that's part of who he wants us to. That's who he wants us to be. The Savior has been stamped with humility, and all those who claim to follow him must also be stamped and marked with humility. We are called to be humble because our master is humble. Now, let me just define that word here because this, this is a word that's misunderstood. Uh, it's, it's what we think humility, we think, you know, self-degradation, you know, you put ourselves down. C.S. Lewis uh, was quoted as saying, you know, humility is not thinking, of, thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And, and to be humble, this is Webster, dictionary, uh, humble, not proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive. It's reflecting or expressing in a spirit of deference or submission. It's ranking low in hierarchy or scale. Friends, this is how Jesus came to us. He did not come to us proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive. He was reflecting or expressing in a spirit of deference or submission. Think of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, ranking low in a hierarchy or a scale. He called himself, he, I did not come to be served, but to serve. This is our king. He is humble. And he has called us to be like him. In fact, listen to some of the, the words of the prophets as they talk about this idea of humility. Isaiah chapter 57. This is God speaking. The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this. I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite 
and humble. These are the kind of people I live with. These are the kind of people I fellowship with, those who are contrite and humble. And the Old Testament is written in the Hebrew language, and you learn something about the meanings of words when they're used in other, other uh, parts of the Scriptures. The only other time where that word contrite is used in, in the Old Testament is in the story of a young boy as an evacuation is taking place in a palace. A nurse, in a rush, drops this young boy, and it, his legs break. And, uh, you know, because of just medical situations back then, the, the bones are not reset, he, and he ends up being crippled. His name is Mephibosheth, and he's, he's handicapped. He's broken. He's crippled. He's contrite. Same word. So when Isaiah is saying that I, God says, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble, those who are broken, those who understand their handicaps, those who are humble. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. This is the kind of person that God admires. This is the one I esteem, those who have humble and contrite hearts and tremble at my word. These are the kind of people I admire. These are the kind of people I love to hang out with. And then you get to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think about this. You feel like you're hitting a wall spiritually? Maybe you're not hitting a wall. Maybe you're hitting a person. It's God. Maybe it's your pride. Now, I'm not saying it is. It could be something completely different. But what if your, your, your lack of spiritual growth or progression is anything other than just simple pride? And God is looking for you to grow in humility because he gives unmerited favor to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, I think most of you know that I love to fish. I used, in business, I used to be part of a fishing tackle company and did a lot of fishing. Um, when I'm fishing for salmon and steelhead, um, I, I, the, the bait I will often use is salmon eggs. And salmon eggs are, you know, they have a little bit of a unique smell to them. And you, when, you're, when you're fishing, you cure them up, and you, they got to be the right color and the right smell because you want a salmon just to gulp one of those things up so you can, you can you know, hook it and bring, bring some fish home. And oftentimes when I come back from fishing, um, I come home and, you know, I, I wash my hands and uh, change my clothes. But the, the smell of the fish and the fish eggs specifically are still on, on my hands. And I, I would go to hug Trina and she would like stiff arm me and say, stay away from me because the smell of, of salmon eggs repelled her. And we, we'd be, you know, lying in bed and I'd roll over and, 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 and she could draw near her and she's like, not for about four days because that's how long it takes. <laughs> But that stink, to, to, she just could not stand the smell of the salmon. I just scour it off me so that, uh, just so that she'd be around me. Uh, it, kind of in the same way, you know, with God, it's like he just can't stand the stink of pride. He, he can't be around it. He, he opposes the proud. Uh, Proverbs chapter 8, let me look at these verses. Proverbs 8, 15, 13. All who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption and perverse speech. God is saying, look, those who fear the Lord, those who follow me, who hate evil. Here's a list of things that are evil. Top of the list, pride and arrogance. Proverbs chapter 16. The Lord detests the proud. They will surely be punished. And that, that's a pretty strong word, detest. I mean, I'm at home and Trina says, I hate it when you leave the lid up. Um, okay, okay. But if she says she detests it, okay, not the emotion has risen, right? That she cannot stand it. Every wife in the room is like, yeah, I mean, come on. 
duh. Every husband's like, what's the big deal? <laughs> the Lord detests the proud. There's some emotion to this. There's some, there's some meaning to this. So if we are going to be people who follow Christ, if we're going to measure our life by the manger, one thing we need, we must understand, is humility is core to our journey of discipleship. So we want to scour, we want to clean ourselves of, 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 of all pride. So what I want to do in the, time, the short time i got left, I just want to give you some practical steps of how you can sort of scour your hands, you could get the stink of pride off your life, some practical ways that you can do this. And uh, just, just in case there's anyone in the room who thinks that this does not apply to them, let me just put a quote up here, okay? The real issue here is not if pride exists in your heart. I'll just stop right there. If you're here today and you've already come to the conclusion that I can't relate to this, Listen, okay? Listen. The real issue here is not if pride exists in your heart. It's where pride exists in your life and how pride is being expressed in your life. Friends, it's there. It's in me. It's in all of us. And if we want to grow in our relationship with the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, living out the Spirit-filled life, we must rid our lives of pride. It's there. we got to get rid of it. So here's some practical ways that you can do this. Some of these I'll go through pretty quick. Uh, some I'll spend a little more time on. But the place to begin is simply by asking God to expose the pride in your life. Start in your vertical relationship with God. God, show me where pride is because we're, we're blind to it. Where is pride? Now, that's a courageous prayer to pray because um, typically when God exposes it, it can be a bit humiliating, right? It can, it can, it can make you feel like pretty low. Um, he's, he's not doing it to demean you. He's not doing it to hurt you. He's just answering your prayer to show you where pride exists. So that, that would just be a great starting point. Uh, ask God to expose pride in your life. The second thing is ask people to expose pride. Ask someone who loves you but isn't necessarily impressed by you. Ask them can you tell me where pride exists in my life? Many of you know the name Sundar Krishnan. Uh, Sundar is a mentor of mine. He's a pastor in Toronto, uh, Canada. Sundar's been here at St. Elm Alliance. Uh, a couple years ago, Sundar and I were in a conversation, and uh, we were talking about pride. And um, Sundar is one of the most humble guys I know. And uh, Sundar uh, said, yeah, you know, a couple years ago, I was sitting down with my wife, with Sham, and, and I asked her this question. I, I, I told her, I, I want you to answer this question. I, I, I don't want you to answer it now. I want you to take a week or so to think it through. And here's the question. Where does pride most manifest itself in my life? And, uh, and, and Sham, as you answer that question, I promise this. I promise not to be defensive. I promise not to be argumentative. I promise to listen, and I, I may ask some clarifying questions. And as Sundar is, is saying this, I'm, I was like, wow, that took guts. So she answered, right? And, and he said, yeah, and he, she had a list. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I listened, and I, I've, been, I've been working on, working on that, that pride in my life, trying, trying to root it out. Get this, I, I heard about that two years ago, and I was on the plane coming back home, 
I, I told myself, I've got to do that in, in my relationship with Trina. I need to ask her that question. But that takes guts. And that was two years ago. I still haven't done it. <laughs> this week, I thought, you know, I'm preaching on humility. This would be the week to pop the question. And then I thought, no, she'll be sitting there. She'll be going, oh, that's why you asked the question. <laughs> why wouldn't I ask that question? Pride. I don't want a list. All right? I don't, I don't, I don't want to see where pride is. There's, there's that carnal part of us that, don't, that we just don't want to see the stink. We don't want to see how it comes out, but we need to. Husbands, this would be a great question to ask your wife. And wives, this would be a great question to ask your husband. If you're not married, if, you, if you're single, it'd be a great question to ask a close friend, to be vulnerable with them. Vulnerability is weakness with trust. Find someone you trust that you can be weak with and ask the question, where does pride most manifest itself in my life? So that'd be the second thing you could do. Here's a, here's a third thing. Be a good listener. Don't one-up. Here's what I mean by this. You know when you, some of you, remember Mario Brothers? I think it's still out there. Mario Brothers, this guy, and you go along, and you hit one of these mushrooms. Here's the mushroom right here, and it says one up on it. And it makes this sound when you're playing the video games. Like, it's, you know, one up, you're up, right? Um, well, my, uh, my wife and I, Trina, we were in this van with, the, with our son, Chase, and uh, he had a bunch of his friends. There's like six or seven guys in the van. We were driving around and um, looking for a place to eat, and they're just talking away in the back of the van, having a great time, and, and we hear um, every so often, and we're like, that's kind of weird. Uh, why, why, are they, why are they making this sound? And so we stopped and said, hey, what's with the... the you know, they said, oh, you know, as a community, what we've told each other is that whenever we're talking and we share something with each other and someone uh, one-ups us, they tell a story that's better than our story and they aren't really listening, we, we make that sound. Just to say, oh, you just one-upped me. You weren't really listening. As I was telling the story, you were thinking about your story and how much better it is than my story. And they've created this language in their small group to say, don't one-up me with your story. Listen to my story. And, and then, then Trina asked, well, who gets, who gets so the, the most in the group? And they said, well, your son. Uh, <laughs> and he, then he shouts by saying, but I have such great stories. Uh, he's, he's a lot like his mother. Uh, it's just amazing. <laughs> Where does pride most manifest itself in my life? <laughs> right here. <laughs> Now he gets it from his dad. Uh, it's, it's, you know, when someone's telling a story, there's that idea in our mind, oh, I've got a better one. Oh, you think that's bad? Here's something that's worse. Uh, you, you, oh, you think that's big? i got something that's bigger. There's something in us, it's called pride, that wants to one-up each other and not listen to what's happening in someone's life. Instead of rejoicing with someone who's rejoicing or even mourning with someone who's mourning, Oh, I'm sorry that you, your mom just got that diagnosis. My mom had that same thing, and, and it, was, you know, it wasn't that bad. We, we want to we just tell our story. Pride always leads to self-glorification. It always leads to self-glorification. And humility, innate in humility, is this lack of desire to impress people. Be a good listener. Don't want to... Last two, pretty quickly. Be teachable. Newsflash, you're not always right. 
You just aren't always right. You may be convinced you're right. There are times you are right. In fact, with a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. The proverb writer says that. And perhaps you've got a group around you saying, no, I think you're on the right track. But there, you're, maybe there's someone who's just really angry with you and they're, they're saying things to you. To be teachable and humble is to say, you know, I may not agree with everything they're saying, but let me just listen to see if there's any truth in what they're saying. Be teachable. And lastly, I would say evict the critical spirit. Evict the critical spirit. There's something in us, this ability we have to see what is wrong and not notice what is right. In fact, one of our family verses is, you know, build one another up, don't tear each other down. It's from 1 Thessalonians. If you're in a a group of friends and you're having a, a party about what's wrong in the world or what's wrong with your neighbor or what's wrong with work or what, you know, whatever. you got to evict the critical spirit because the critical spirit is saying, I know better. It's, it's a demonstration of pride. I'm not talking about constructive criticism. There's times we need to hear truth, but we speak the truth in love. It's different than a critical spirit. So that, that's just some practical ways to scour the pride off you, get that stink of pride off you, and to, to, when you see a manger, to think humble and think that is the antithesis to pride. God did not come with this splash or flash or pizzazz. He came and hardly anyone knew that he arrived. And that was on purpose. He is the humble king. Last thing, uh, when I was growing up, my, my goal for myself personally when I graduated from high school was to be six foot tall. I just thought that was the standard of success in our family. My dad was six foot tall. Grandpa was six foot tall. Uh, and so I thought, you know, I wanted to be tall. Six foot was like, man, that was success. That was my goal. In the ninth grade, I was four foot 11. True story. I was like, I'm cursed. I, have a, I, have a, I had a grandmother who was four foot eleven, and uh, I, I, in those days, back of the comic books, they had these like these pills you could order that you could grow really fast. I was contemplating buying the pills. I didn't know how to get them in Malaysia, uh, but I, I wanted those because I wanted to be tall. I graduated from high school. I was five foot eleven and three quarter inches tall. That close. And it, it was the wrong standard. Interesting enough, my, my oldest son is six foot four. My next son is six foot three. I, I, I don't know. Skips a generation or something. But, you know, oftentimes, this sounds like a ridiculous standard for you. You don't have any control of that. And oftentimes, we have standards we set for ourselves. We have no control over it. And frankly, they're the wrong standards. My prayer for us in this Advent season is that we'd look at the manger and we'd see a standard. That's not set by us. It's set by the king. He is the king who's not in a hurry. He is the king who is humble. Would you pray with me, please? So, Lord, as we come to you this Advent season, there's so many things our world wants us to measure our success by. We want to be measured by you. May your humility be reflected in our lives as we follow after you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.